Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our distinguished guest today is Olivier Waugh, who is a professor at the School of Advanced Studies in Social Sciences in Paris. He is one of the world's leading experts on Islam, and his most recent book is Globalized Islam, The Search for a New Ummah. Olivier, welcome back to Berkeley. Welcome, thank you. Give us a sense of what globalization is all about and how it's changing our lives. I think that globalization now could be defined as some sort of a common space which has no territorial basis. That we can have access to this space, of course, through internet, but also through different means. And in this space, values, ideas, habits, norms are circulating without any reference to a specific culture, to a specific society. So, of course, it means that languages are no more bearer of specific culture, and by definition, English is becoming this global uh, language, and people could have access very easily to this uh, global space. Mm-hmm. And, and g- could you give me an example, not necessarily, you know, a Muslim particularly, but just something that the average American can understand about how they are part of that space and maybe they don't even know it? Uh, For instance, uh, if you take uh, a fashion hmm, uh, uh, from blue jeans to streetwear, then you see that uh, uh, the youth uh, in very different places use to to buy and to wear exactly the same clothing. You know, what we call the streetwear here in the States is also uh, uh, very common among the youth in France, in Great Britain, in Eastern Europe, and uh, probably in other parts of the world. Uh, uh, food also. Uh, let's take uh, the McDonald's effect. You know, uh, you have McDonald's everywhere in the world, or the equivalent of uh, uh, McDonald's fast food is uh, now uh, very popular, uh, not only among the youth. Uh, uh, debates also. Uh, the debates about, uh, for instance, gay rights. You have the same debate uh, in Great Britain, in uh, America, in Zimbabwe, in uh, India, or even in China. You know. Uh, so you have this generalization of uh, norms, values, debate, and stakes. And people are watching what is going on elsewhere. Uh, uh, any debate, for example, important debate uh, which could happen in the state is reverberated uh, elsewhere. Mm. Uh, Take, for instance, uh, uh, recently uh, the debate about racism on uh, uh, Channel 4 in Great Britain. You had immediately demonstrations in India about that. Mm -hmm. Now, so what, and in making this world, I guess on the, the, uh, uh, there are two factors that come to mind. One is the power of technology to convey these images and so on. But the other, the the, the globalization of international capital in a in a new sort of way. Is, are those are those the factors that make possible this this globalization? Uh, of course, by definition, technology is helping and spreading this uh, uh, globalization. But the globalization is not just a consequence of uh, the new technology. The uh, globalizations did, of course, start before the uh, invention of Internet. But the spread of Internet is also linked with the fact that globalization globalization did exist. Now, uh, uh, so technology is part uh, of uh, this uh, uh, new world. It's not just a cause for it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, how, how does this phenomena uh, impact the individual? What, what, what becomes his, his, his primary uh, uh, problem? Uh, the primary problem, if you can say that, is that uh, 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 you don't need uh, to be part of a uh, uh, tight-knit uh, social fabric. You don't need to be uh, a part, even to have a strong uh, local social life. Uh, you can debate, you can think of, think of yourself as an actor, in a sense, by participating into debates, by watching what is going on elsewhere, by having an opinion about uh, uh, things 
things which could be uh, very far uh, from you uh, without uh, being associated with a local culture, a local community, uh, or even a local uh, citizenship. So we have this interesting uh, uh, discrepancy uh, between the local and the global. Uh, so uh, what is at stake here, I would say, is more uh, national identities than really local identities. Uh, what is threatened by uh, uh, this globalization is the national identity, uh, the traditional nation state. And uh, in all of this, and we're very much aware of it, is, is really the uprooting of people physically and, and these global migrations, these diasporas, uh, and so on. Talk a little about that, because that seems to be uh, a key element in, in our contemporary situation. Yeah, mobility is a key factor. And, of course, migrations are part of the mobility. Uh, but mobility goes be, behind uh, migration. Uh, uh, the migration phenomena is well known. It's almost always from east to west and from south to north. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, it's not all the story. Uh, you have people going uh, back and forth. Uh, you have the mobility of the intellectuals also, which is something very important. Now you can, for example, graduate from a, a European country, then uh, uh, spend some years in America, and then take a position in Singapore or in Tokyo and things like that. So we have a, a, a universal, I would say, space of scholarship uh, with a, a trend to allow the curriculum of the different uh, uh, countries and also to, to align uh, the debate uh, on the specific intellectual issues. Uh, you have also the mobility of uh, professionals, of people who uh, engineers, for example, technicians, who can go here and there. And you have also the, they could call the virtual mobility, people who can stay physically at home, like, for example, uh, uh, computer engineers uh, uh, from India, but uh, who can work in India for a transnational network and be in touch uh, on a daily basis with people uh, from uh, uh, everywhere around the world. So uh, mobility is a general phenomena, and it's far more complex than, ju than just migrations. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to read two quotes to you uh, from your book. You, you say the basic dimension of contemporary globalization, that of turning human behavior into codes and patterns of consumption and communication delinked from any specific culture. And then as you address the problem of the impact of this on religion, you write, social life of things depends on the meaning bestowed on them by consumer actors, the religious market is part of the global market. Talk a little about the impact of globalization on religion generally. There is a, a, a basic uh, assumption that, that uh, religions and cultures are linked. You know, uh, In the concept of clash of civilizations or dialogue of civilization, the basic idea is that uh, any culture has some sort of a religious roots and any religion is embodied uh, in a specific culture. What is happening now is the disconnect between religion and culture. And if we take, for example, from uh, example, let's take diet, for instance. No. Uh, in Islam, the food uh, should be halal. It's a way to uh, uh, kill uh, uh, animals and to prepare uh, uh, meat. So, by definition, halal has been associated with traditional cuisines. No. Uh, but now, if you look, for example, at young Muslims uh, living uh, in Europe, they are, not they are not interested in traditional Moroccan cuisine, in traditional Turkish cuisine, and things like that. So when they operate a restaurant, for example, uh, they usually establish, create uh, fast food. Uh, but it's halal. So what they have is halal fast food. Uh, we have, for example, near Paris, uh, fast food called, in English, uh, uh, Muslim McBurger, you know. Uh, so they're playing on terms, playing on languages, and what they are offering is a traditional uh, uh, American fast food, but with religious markers. Uh, the food is halal, uh, female waitress uh, may have a veil, for example, or a scarf, and things mm -hmm. like that. Uh, another example, a uh, uh, Muslim businessman in France launched on the market Mecca Cola. You know. So uh, it's 
exactly like Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, but it's called Mecca by reference to uh, Mecca in Saudi Arabia. And it's supposed to be uh, uh, something uh, uh, fashionable for Muslims. It has nothing Islamic in it at all, except uh, uh, the brand Mecca. And this uh, uh, collab was very successful among young Muslims who uh, both wants to affirm, you know, to put uh, uh, on the public space uh, a religious marker to show that they are Muslim, but in the same time, they are totally westernized. Hmm? They're not interested in drinking uh, 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 camel milk or things like that, or even of drinking green tea. So they are happy to have a global product with a religious marker on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you talk, uh, and, and as I read your book, I, I'm reminded of, of the history of Islam, where as it spread, it's my understanding that there was an interaction between the local uh, culture and tradition, and that, and that in turn interacted on, on, on the faith and, and the way it was practiced. I, I, from what you're saying, I get this sense that there is now a new space, which is this space that you've been talking about, and a similar kind of interface is occurring. Is, is that fair, that, that in other words, Islam is in a way, I, in fact, I think you say it in the book, that, that the question is, can, can we Islamicize modernity? I, I think you quoted someone as saying, is that, is that correct, what I'm saying? Uh, yes, uh, in history, all religions uh, did encounter different cultures and adapted to these uh, different cultures. It's uh, the process of acculturation. Uh, and Christianity also uh, has been uh, acculturated in a way uh, when, for example, rooting itself in Africa or uh, Latin America. So uh, when Islam, for instance, reached uh, uh, the Persians, uh, it gave birth to a new culture, uh, the Islamic Persian culture, which is still uh, very uh, vivid. What is new now is that, in fact, to uh, some extent, we are not in the process of creating a new culture. Uh, the religious markers don't root themselves in a specific culture. They remain autonomous. And not only in Islam, but for me, in some uh, uh, part of Christianity, for example, and I'm specifically referring to uh, evangelicalism, uh, for instance, we have this same autonomization of the religious marker. The faith is something which, which is no more embodied in a specific culture. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, it's a way to become modern. And we can even say it's a way to become Western. So this disconnect between uh, the Islamic religious markers and traditional Arab or Persian uh, culture Mm -hmm. is a prerequisite for uh, uh, modernization and Westernization. But this doesn't mean that uh, uh, it's to become a liberal religion, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, uh, the, the condition for modernization is this autonomization of the religious, not necessarily uh, liberalization uh, uh, or, uh, you know, adaptation to uh, values of uh, freedom, uh, uh, things like that. You can be fundamentalist and modern. Mm-hmm. You make the distinction... Uh, in order to get a handle on this between religiosity and uh, commitment to a religion. Explain that. A religion is a a corpus. You know, it's... First, it's uh, uh, books, revealed text, a tradition, uh, a theology, uh, interpretation, and things like that. Uh, Religiosity is the way an individual experiences uh, uh, his or her religion. Uh, so religiosity is really, uh, uh, a personal relation to religion. And uh, what is striking me now is that we have a convergence of religiosities uh, between the different religions, while in terms of theology, uh, the interfaith dialogue is not working. You know, so we do not have a convergence among theologians, but we have a convergence about believers on what does it mean 
to be a believer, mm -hmm. even if they, of course, uh, 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 consider that uh, they have their own truth and that the other guy is wrong. Mm -hmm. So, so in a way, what what you're th th this is a a uh, uh, an issue of comparative religious studies. The same thing is happening to all faiths uh, in in the faith in 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 in, in confronting. Uh, globalization. You write, uh, you're, you're, you're developing the idea of the individuation of religion within the context of globalization, and you say the self and hence the individual is at the core of religiosity. Faith is personal. Faith is the truth. Faith is not religion. So this is a phenomena that's, that's happening in all religions to some degree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and specifically, it's the phenomena which is uh, 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 the cause of what we call the born-again uh, uh, phenomena. The fact that suddenly an individual uh, meets the truth. And he doesn't meet the truth after studying religion for years, after graduating in theology. The truth is an encounter between an individual and the sacred. And the sacred could be Jesus Christ, it could be God, it could be uh, Muhammad, it could be different things, you know. But it's an individual experience. It's not the consequence of uh, a, some sort of a teaching or of a culture. So by definition, this encounter goes along, uh, along with a break, you know, a break. A break with your family, a break with mm -hmm. the past, your individual past, but also the past of your society, a break with history. And suddenly, the individual is new and alone with the truth. You know. He has the truth. So this uh, process of individuation is for me at the core of the, new, of the modern forms of religiosity. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and to repeat, you, you, the, the other phenomena here is kind of the, the deterritorialization de of the individual. So they, they not only are, uh, uh, disassociate them from, from social and family ties, but also from the land that they uh, originally came from often. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, they don't consider themselves strictly as a diaspora. Uh, they refer to a faith community, and this faith community is not something which is territorial. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's going on in every religion. For instance, you know, uh, before for the Christians, a parish was a territorial thing. The parish was a place where uh, you were living. So now, your religious congregation is not necessarily on the territory you are living in. And, you, know, you can go by car or some uh, different means far to uh, uh, meet the people you uh, consider as being uh, your brothers in religion. Uh, you can go through internet. You, know, you can chat or even pray through internet uh, to meet uh, your uh, your real brothers and fellows. You know. So we have this deterritorialization of the faith communities. And it goes, uh, it goes very far, including in political terms, for example. If we look at radicals like uh, uh, Al-Qaeda's people, contrary to what many people think, they are not fighting to recreate you know, uh, an Islamic caliphate in the Middle East. They are fighting at a global level against what they perceive as a global enemy, and they don't care about territory. Mm -hmm. So this phenomenon of deterritorialization is, I would say, at the core of uh, uh, most of the forms of uh, religiosity now, including the most politically oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, your, the subtitle of your book, which I will show again, is The Search for the New Uma. Uh, help us understand what the Ummah is, and then what the search for a new one is? The Ummah is the community of all the believers, so of uh, Muslim uh, believers. And traditionally, in uh, uh, Muslim history, the Ummah was identified with a territory, the territory of Islam. And a Muslim was not supposed to stay long uh, in a country which was not a part of this uh, territorial Ummah. What we have now is a situation when it's no more possible to speak in terms of uh, a territory of Islam. 
Uh, not only because uh, many uh, Muslim migrants are living as a minority in uh, non-Muslim countries, but also because many believers consider that their own supposedly Muslim country is no more Muslim. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we have this, the same phenomena among, I would say, many Protestants and many Muslims to consider that, in fact, they are a minority, a small minority of true believers surrounded by uh, uh, people who don't really uh, believe, even if they are nominal Muslims or Christians. So uh, the true believers now tend to consider themselves as uh, uh, being a non-territorial minority. So the endeavor is to try to build, to construct a virtual faith community which is not linked with a specific territory. So uh, the community of the saints, the community of the believers, both in uh, Protestantism and among uh, the forms of, for instance, uh, Salafi uh, Islam, uh, are uh, uh, deterritorialized, but also are global, precisely because they are not territorial. Now, you, you are a scholar of Islam, and, and in your earlier works, you, you traced the conflicts uh, within Islam. And in this book, you're, you're focusing on uh, uh, the evolution of two groups, uh, the, the Islamicists and the fundamentalists. Let's talk about uh, uh, those groups one at a time and understand who they are and how they're being affected by globalization and by their own uh, actions. Who, who are the Islamicists and what is their take uh, on their faith? The Islamicists are people who consider that Islam is, first of all, an ideology, a political ideology. So the founders of Islamism, like Hassan al-Banna, Maududi, and to a lesser extent Khomeini, have been influenced by the Western political ideologies of uh, 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 the 20th century, Marxism, for instance. Of course, they are not Marxist. But uh, they came to the conclusion that Islam is not just a religion, is not just a legal system. It has to become a whole political system. So for the Islamicists, the state is the key of the re-Islamization of the society. So they insist on political action, on taking the power at the state level, of building a true Islamic constitution, uh, uh, a true Islamic economy, uh, Islamic social justice. And in this sense, they are very interested in uh, social sciences and in all the aspects of a modern society, including women, for example. Uh, the Islamists did promote women organization, women movement, and things like that. And usually, they consider that women should work, could work, should work, and may uh, 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 hold some uh, political position, for instance, as uh, in Iran uh, now. So, in this sense, we can compare the Islamists with the communists. First, let's create a true Islamic or socialist state in a given country, then we could try to unite all these Islamist or socialist countries in a global political system of uh, Islam or of communism. But uh, the same thing happened to the Islamicists than uh, uh, as to the uh, communists. They were, in fact, taken by the state they wanted to take. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, they became uh, ordinary politicians, if I can say that, mm. uh, and nationalists. So it's a typical example with the Iranian revolution. The Iranian uh, revolution didn't fulfill its promises of uh, a social equality, of a just economy, and so. Uh, it's a classical uh, third world state economy uh, with uh, 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 oil rent, uh, uh, chronism, patronage, uh, uh, clientelism, and corruption, you know, than uh, any other uh, uh, society uh, of uh, this kind. So, in this sense, it was what I call the failure of political Islam. They failed to build a truly Islamic state. So now they have the choice 
between two directions. One is to say, okay, uh, we should not uh, concentrate on the state. We should go global. And uh, like the Trotskyists, you know, in uh, the history mm. of communism did. We should go global. And we should become a professional, world, deterritorialized uh, organization. The Al-Qaeda thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Or they can say, look, we cannot uh, uh, establish our ideological state. But if we want to uh, manage uh, the state, if we want to be politicians, then we have to make coalitions with other people. We have to go for elections. And we have to accept democracy. And this way is embodied, for instance, by the uh, uh, prime minister of Turkey, uh, Tayyip Erdogan, who was an Islamicist when uh, he was a student and even a, a, a junior militant. But after 10 years of uh, uh, political experience of uh, having been the mayor of Istanbul, he came to the conclusion that ideology doesn't help. Uh, and of course, uh, he wants to promote specific values. He's a, a man of conviction. But he's becoming something like the equivalent of a Muslim Christian democracy, if I can say that, you know. Promoting values, conservative and religious values, but uh, uh, fully accepting the rules of the democratic game. So it's why I think that the Islamicist uh, is, uh, we have to, a choice, if I can say that, between uh, the present Turkey uh, or the Afghan Taliban. Mm -hmm. uh, if we are able to integrate the Islamicists in the political field, then uh, we are helping to promote democracy and we have something which could be close to what Turkey is now. Mm -hmm. And if we reject the Islamicists from the political field, then we push them into the arms of the Taliban. Mm -hmm. and, and talk a little about that Taliban experiment. In other words, what was their... Uh, relationship to the state? Did they seize it and then do nothing with it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's very interesting, for example, Mullah Omar, the head of the Taliban, never went to Kabul, the capital of the country. He never chaired mm. a cabinet uh, uh, in the government. He never he refused to meet any ambassador who was not a Muslim. And uh, it's interesting because in this sense, the Taliban were uh, 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 in favor of free market. Uh, they did not impose anything in terms of taxation, uh, 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 customs, and things like that. They didn't care, you know. And it's why they were quite popular uh, among the merchant, uh, merchant class, for instance. Uh, they just uh, take, they just took uh, the religious tax on everybody. And then uh, it was a, a, a free market, absolute free market. Mm -hmm. They didn't, they didn't edict any regulation except religious uh, uh, regulations concerning, for example, the dress code, the women, and things like that. And these religious regulations were very tough, of course, by definition, you know. Uh, it's why the Taliban are not democrat. But it's not a totalitarian state. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, uh, let's take an example, house searching. When you are, uh, uh, when you uh, are uh, heading a totalitarian state, you, of course, perform house searching at any time. In Iran, uh, an Ayatollah, not Khomeini, said, declared, that house searching are not halal, so uh, are not conform to the religious law, because if you send a, a local policeman at night in a private house, he may see a woman hmm. with no veil or maybe uh, uh, no clothing at all, and so he will become a sinner uh, uh, by performing his hmm. duty. Uh, so uh, he may uh, uh, put his salvation into danger by performing a state duty. So it's better to prohibit uh, uh, house searching. Mm. And Romani became furious and said, no, the law of the state is superior uh, uh, to the Sharia because the state is, is Islamic. Mm. But the Taliban did uh, 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 forbid house searching mm. uh, uh, for religious reasons. So you say that, in fact, the Taliban were not interesting, uh, interested in building a state. No. And for them, the role as political leaders was not only to allow, but to force people to think about their personal salvation.
So, mm-hmm. in this sense, it's a very religious regime, uh, but it's not an ideological state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, it's why they lose. Because when Mullah Omar was confronted between a choice, you know, uh, the Americans uh, at the evening at 9-11 uh, uh, put, uh, of course, uh, uh, an ultimatum. Uh, you have 24 hours to give us Ben Laden or we attack. Mm-hmm. And any, I would say, rational statesman in this case would have accepted you know, to uh, uh, deliver, uh, to extradite a foreigner and a terrorist uh, instead of endangering uh, uh, the whole state, the whole nation. But Mollah didn't hesitate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he sided uh, with uh, Ben Laden and he lost uh, his state mm-hmm. uh, and uh, from his point of view, his country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and help us understand the, uh, the uh, uh, destruction of the Buddhas, because this actually demonstrates your point about uh, 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 faith being disassociated from any culture, really. Yeah, it's interesting to see that Afghanistan has always been a very strong and conservative Muslim society. But during the uh, uh, 15th century, of Muslim law in Afghanistan, the Buddha were not destroyed. So it's something which is totally new. The Buddhas have been accepted by the Afghan society and by the Afghan rulers for uh, uh, 15 centuries. And suddenly, the Taliban came and destroyed it. There are two dimensions in that. One is, was political, purely political, you know, uh, to show to the Westerners that uh, they will not hesitate to fight. Uh, but the second motivation was very interesting. Uh, Mullah Omar stated, look, these Buddhas, uh, uh, either it's culture or it's religion. If it's culture, we are not interested. You know? mm-hmm. uh, 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 culture is something we should not stand in front of religion. If it's religion, it's Buddhism. Do we have Buddhists in Afghanistan? No, we don't have Buddhists. So in this case, these Buddhas are totally useless. <laughs> so it's a clear example, you know, of this disconnect between culture and religion. We care about religion. We don't care about culture. Mm-hmm. Now, the second uh, uh, stream of thought uh, or group within Islam that you focus on is uh, what you call the neo-fundamentalists. Talk a little about them and what they represent? The neo-fundamentalists, uh, we can call them Salafi, Wahhabi, Tabliri, and so there are different groups, movements, I will not enter into uh, details. But what I call the neo-fundamentalists uh, are people who think that a society would become entirely Islamic only when its members uh, uh, would become entirely Muslim. So they think that Islamization is first an issue of individuals. Uh, so they insist, of, uh, they insist on salvation mm. uh, and the aftermath, while uh, for the Islamists, uh, uh, the real salvation was the establishment of a, a, a good state, a good Islamic state. Uh, for the neo-fundamentalists, it doesn't matter. The issue is individual salvation. And in this sense, they are quite pessimist, like many, by the way, uh, evangelicalists. You know. They think that uh, uh, only a minority of uh, uh, people will be really saved. And they think, of course, that they are in this minority. So uh, for them, it's useless to fight to create a specific state or society. Uh, uh, the day is coming. Uh, we have to be ready and we have to change our personal life. That's the first point. The second point is that for them, uh, 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 religiosity is largely a matter of norms. Mm. We have to do this and that. We have to dress this way. We have to eat that way. And so they are obsessed by norms instead of values. You know. uh, so they uh, try to impose a very normative way of life. And the Taliban, by definition, fit into this uh, category. Uh, for example, the, uh, the religious police used to oblige the people to pray uh, at the uh, uh, fixed uh, time. You know. uh, uh, in a sense, you know, they, are t- they are trying to force the people to think about their salvation, but they are n- not sure of the results. And uh, uh, the third point 
if uh, that uh, the uh, neo-fundamentalists, like I would say all modern fundamentalists, uh, they consider that they are living as a minority in a society which is secularized, which is corrupt, mm-hmm. even if it's supposed to be a Muslim society. For they see culture as antagonist to religion. Uh, uh, they say, for example, it's very striking to see that some Salafis in Saudi Arabia are speaking like many uh, evangelist preachers in the state. They say, we might be nominal believers, our society might be a Christian or a Muslim society, but in fact, our society is culturally secular, culturally corrupt, mm-hmm. uh, even if the majority of the people pretend uh, to be uh, believers. So uh, they consider that, uh, once again, that religions, religion and culture uh, is antagonist and that we have to give up culture in order to uh, remain a true uh, believer. Uh, uh, so they are, in this sense, uh, uh, actors of the process of globalization because they contribute to deculturize religion and hence the religions they are promoting are, I would say, fit for the world market. You know, uh, uh, It can be marketed, if I can say that, as a global product with success everywhere. Mm-hmm. Let's take a specific example, the issue in France of the veiling uh, of students in the public uh, space. Talk a little about how that played out and say what would be the fundamentalist uh, position, you know, on that issue in France? The first thing is that almost all of the girls who came suddenly, one day, uh, wearing a veil at school, uh, they were totally westernized, they were French, uh, uh, they had uh, good education, and they were good uh, school girls with high marks. And uh, they uh, uh, used to wear the veil on a voluntary basis. You know, they were not forced by their family, their brothers, and things like that. And this was seen as a scandal by the public opinion. You know, in France. In France. Yeah, yeah. In France. How do you can voluntarily uh, give up your freedom? Uh, you, uh, how do you can voluntarily, you know, uh, uh, how to say, uh, uh, close yourself? You know in a small world of religion. Prevent yourself to be a free, modern woman. No. Uh, uh, so there has been a, a, a big rejection uh, by the French public uh, opinion. And uh, uh, they attributed uh, this uh, uh, wearing of the veil, the, the public opinion did attribute this uh, wearing of the veil to traditional culture. But it's absolutely not the case. On the contrary, you know. Uh, these girls, they want to be modern Western girls, but with a religious marker on them, mm. you know. And they want to assess their own religious identity, their individual person, uh, 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 religious choice. And it's very interesting to see that they use a feminist to, to assess the right to wear the veil, and the motto was, our body is our business. So they, they took a traditional mm-hmm. feminist motto and they turned it in favor of wearing the veil. Mm-hmm. And the feminist movements were split. The, the majority of the feminists were opposed to the veil, while a small minority said, okay, look, this girl, they do what they want, they are free. It's a way for them to assert their individuality. Uh, it's not cultural, we have to accept, even if we uh, uh, disagree. Uh, so uh, there's uh, been a big misunderstanding. Instead of thinking that as a consequence of the individualization of religious practices, uh, the majority of the French public opinion saw uh, that through the lens of the clash of civilizations. And hence, there has been a huge support among the parliament on a non-partisan uh, basis and the public opinion to ban the veil uh, from the schools. Mm-hmm. Now, now help, help us understand how all of these changes in, in the global society, the changes with Islam, then the question becomes, well, then who are the terrorists 
that have become the 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 uh, the monster in uh, uh, our war on terror. The first perception of the terrorists uh, uh, after 9-11 was that these guys are foreigners coming from the Middle East to export the crisis, uh, the Middle East crisis into the West, you know. So there was a feeling in the States, but in Europe too, to be under siege in a sense, to be, to be attacked from abroad by a different civilization, a different culture and so. But in fact, if we look at, uh, I would say, the background of the terrorists. And uh, we know who they are. We have hundreds of names, people, uh, terrorists who have been killed, jailed, assassinated, uh, uh, died uh, uh, in terrorist action, or uh, uh, fleeing, you know, escaping. And so, but we have hundreds and hundreds of names. And what is striking is most of them have a Western background, you know. Uh, we have, it's interesting to see, for instance, that there is no Palestinian no Iraqi, no Afghan mm -hmm. coming to avenge, you know, uh, what is going on in their country uh, 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 to fight against the West. No, these guys have a, a deterritorialized uh, background. For instance, uh, uh, they may be born in a country, then educated to another country, then going to fight in a third country, uh, or uh, taking uh, uh, refuge uh, uh, in a, a fourth country and things like that. None of them uh, has a religious background. None of them uh, uh, has uh, comes from a very traditional uh, family. All of them are born again. Uh, all of them are uh, young. At least most of them are uh, young, and uh, they jumped, you know, to uh, uh, fundamentalism and to political activism uh, almost in the same time. So it's not a long process of religious brainwashing on young uh, uh, school children, not at all. Mm -hmm. uh, these guys, uh, uh, they become, used to become born again, and suddenly they decide to go for the real thing, and the real thing is doing something which will be uh, 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 reverberated on uh, uh, the global sphere, uh, so something uh, uh, which uh, is highly visible, uh, uh, will be on the TV the, the same day and things like that. They are not interested in long guerrilla warfare. They are not interested in uh, uh, mobilizing the masses, in uh, 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 making political parties, in uh, making propaganda. No. They are interested by, uh, I would say, by TV, you know, uh, uh, by making the news immediately. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see that, uh, uh, they said, these guys, they live in a global world. Let's take, for example, some of them. Uh, 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 the pilots of the World Trade Center came from the Middle East, but have been educated in Germany, and they became born-again Muslims in Germany, not in Egypt nor Lebanon, mm -hmm. you know, and they decided to go to Afghanistan for training, then uh, to go to New York to uh, 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 destroy the World Trade Center. Among these guys, and, uh, uh, among other uh, networks, we have a lot of converts. And this is something which is very interesting, you know. At least 10% of Al-Qaeda's militants uh, who are acting globally, not in a specific country, are converts. And in France, uh, the percentage uh, might go as, uh, as much as 20-25%. So the fact that uh, uh, Al-Qaeda is uh, the uh, Muslim organization which has the highest number of converts show that, by definition, Al-Qaeda is the most globalized uh, 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 radical organization. Because a convert uh, uh, is not motivated by uh, his or her culture at all. He is not motivated by mm. the political life of uh, his or her country. No. He is motivated by joining something global. Mm. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so Al-Qaeda is made of born-again and converts who uh, try to join a global jihad. And one day they go to Bosnia. Uh, another year they will go to Chechnya, or to Kashmir, or to Afghanistan, or to Fallujah. Mm. Very few of them, by the way, went to Palestine. Very, mm -hmm. very few. 
so we have these global jihadists, uh, some sort of jihad tour, you know, going from jihad to jihad, living in uh, a global world where they speak more English than Arabic uh, uh, or uh, Persian, uh, uh, using uh, 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 fast food, going to Hilton, uh, big hotels, and things like that. Uh, they are the perfect example of uh, the modern-day global travelers. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you you point out that that uh, the the difference in the understanding of jihad becomes very important here because for them jihad is a personal struggle as opposed to a collective one. Yes, in the traditional uh, uh, interpretation of Muslim law, uh, jihad could be uh, waged under very strict conditions. It should be territorially limited. You do jihad for a specific territory. It should be under the guidance of uh, legitimate political and religious leaders. And it's a collective obligation. That means that if other people do jihad, you are not personally obliged to go for that. And this new generation, these new radicals, they brought innovations that. First, they said we should, everybody should go for jihad. It's an individual duty. It's not collective. Mm. Secondly, uh, we are in a permanent jihad. And thirdly, jihad is global. Uh, it's not uh, 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 linked with a specific territory. Uh, and it's under, you know, this definition of uh, jihad that uh, the foreigners of Al-Qaeda left Palestine to go to Afghanistan. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Palestine, I would say, uh, for uh, 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 Muslim believers, it's a traditional case of jihad. It's territorially limited, it concerns the Palestinian people, and it has to be uh, done under, under specific political guidance. And uh, some guys uh, disagreed with that, you know. Uh, the, uh, the forerunner of Al-Qaeda, Abdallah Azam, left Jordani, Jordan and decided to go to Afghanistan because it said, you know, this Palestinian jihad is too limited in scope. Uh, it's under the control of people who are not true Muslims, like uh, Yasser Arafat, for instance. Uh, uh, they will negotiate sooner or later. And if they win a Palestinian state, it will be any sort of Arab state like Egypt, Jordan, Syria. We are not interested, no. Then is it fair to conclude that the terrorism, in a way, is more of a police problem than a national security problem? I mean, it's a national security problem in the sense what weapons are they using and so on. But, but in, in, in fact, the, the best way to get at this problem is through good police work and good intelligence and cooperation put between police forces uh, throughout the world. Absolutely. And the big mistake has been uh, to uh, uh, respond to uh, 9-11 by a traditional warfare, by sending troops to occupy territory. Uh, but these guys don't care about territory. If Afghanistan is controlled by uh, a coalition army, well, they leave Afghanistan and they go to Pakistan. What do we do now? Uh, uh, so it's why the decision to go to Iraq, for me, doesn't make sense uh, in uh, the perspective of a war against terrorism. Mm-hmm. First, as we know now, there was no links between Saddam Hussein and uh, Al-Qaeda. Secondly, uh, there was no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. But more important, once we are in Iraq, we're stuck. We're stuck, mm-hmm. you know. And of course, uh, uh, it's a good thing to get rid of a dictator like Saddam Hussein. It's a good thing, I think, to uh, uh, wish that uh, uh, Arab countries should become democracies. I am not at all opposed to that. But it's a waste of time, in a sense, and of means, uh, if we want to fight global terrorism. Uh, uh, Not only are these wars fueling uh, terrorism, but uh, uh, they uh, they, they have a very negative side effect. Uh, convincing uh, the uh, many uh, people that, in fact, the West is weak. The West is unable to wage more than a local war. That Western army, and specifically the American army, is even not able you know, uh, to uh, uh, overcome uh, some uh, uh, tens of thousands of local uh, uh, guerrilleros. And uh, 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 an eventual withdrawal from Iraq will be seen as a defeat. Mm-hmm. 
there, there's much discussion in the United States when you're looking at uh, non-military action. And we hear uh, from Thomas Friedman, where are the moderate voices in Islam? Uh, what, what is the what, – what is – the policy implication of what you're saying. What makes for a, sensu- a sensible strategy, uh, uh, and here I'm, I'm not talking about dealing with the terrorists, but in terms of uh, re- the West relating to Islam uh, and uh, 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 individuals of faith in all the faiths relating to each other? First, there are moderate voices in Islam. Uh, people who uh, either uh, explicitly condemn terrorism or who explicitly try to devise, you know, a more liberal and open Muslim theology. The problem is that these guys are not abstract people. They have a citizenship. Uh, They are not necessarily global people. Uh, uh, They may live in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Israel, uh, in Saudi Arabia, and so and so. And what they see is that all the local concerns are uh, perceived by the West through the lens of the war against terrorism. Uh, uh, for instance, we, uh, there are conflicts in the Middle East, of course, you know, and there will be conflicts in the Middle East. But the roots of these conflicts uh, have nothing to do with terrorism or with Islam. Most of these conflicts mm. are nationalist, you know. Uh, the Palestinians are fighting for a Palestinian state. They are not fighting for an Islamic state. You know. And if Hamas won the elections, it's not because Hamas is Islamic. It's because uh, the Palestinians were convinced that uh, Hamas would be better than uh, the Fatah, uh, not to destroy Israel, uh, but uh, uh, to manage uh, uh, the budget, uh, the bureaucracy, and uh, the society. You know. uh, and we don't take into consideration this uh, nationalism. So we tend to tell to all the Arabs, give up your uh, nationalism first, uh, uh, adopt our Western point of view first, and then we'll talk to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they say is address first uh, our political problems, and then we may speak about uh, 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 interface dialogue, moderation, and things like that. So there is a huge mi- misunderstanding. Uh, 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 the Arab intellectuals, either Islamists, secularists, or even Christian, by the way, are, for most of them, nationalists. Uh, uh, and nationalism is a bad term here in the States. Patriotism is a good term, but only the Americans are supposed to be patriots, and the foreigners <laughs> are seen uh, as, as uh, bad nationalists, you know. No, these guys, they are also uh, uh, patriots, you know. They want to do something for the country, and they resent, for good or bad reasons, it's another debate, but they, re- they resent the present policy of the, uh, the West, of the international community. So, for me, we should, you know, uh, disconnect the issue of Islam as such and uh, the real issues of the Middle East, which are nationalist, ethnic, uh, uh, or sectarian uh, uh, problems and divisions. Uh, Olivier, I want to thank you very much for coming on our program again. I want to recommend very highly your new book, uh, uh, Globalized uh, Islam, uh, which really offers us an uh, insightful picture of, uh, of that uh, faith. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Harry. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.